I want to talk with you about a common subject, one that's often discussed, and therefore it is, it's also a controversial subject in many ways. Historically, it certainly has been an extremely controversial subject, but I want to try to do so in the plainest and simplest ma- uh, manner that, that we can. So there's many places and ways we can go about this, but I've chosen to look at just a few of the various scriptures to look at because I think it's important both for people who are Christians and those who are not to understand the subject of salvation or by or the relationship of grace and faith and how that all works together to save people. This is something that is unique to Christianity, a discussion of the salvation of man, because other religions don't really have man as being lost in the first place. And that's one of the things I want you to get from this lesson today, whether I express it perfect clearly or not, is the idea of being lost and what it means to be saved. I think that's missing in a lot of so-called Christian circles and certain kinds of religion and how you get there. And then we'll talk, read some Bible scriptures together, because as you know, the, the premise that we operate under here, I think it's the right one. We could go and speak, we probably do have preached many sermons about that, why it's the correct thing to go back to what the apostles said and try to recreate in this century what they what they taught in the first century because we get past a lot of other stuff that humans have invented and we get back to what the text itself says. And the older I get, the more important that text becomes to me, understanding it clearly and not being led astray by philosophical assumptions, conclusions that people draw from things that may or may not be true. But what does the text say about something? I know there are many other preachers who believe that. I'm not saying that. And I know that many people that I disagree with strongly about even this subject, I know that they would say the same thing. I, I'm not trying to cast aspersion on them. But I do know that there are plenty of, Christi- of preachers and other sources who do not consider the text to be that critical because they look at what they call, would call historic Christianity and orthodox teaching. And that would be their guideline in how to determine what's right or wrong. They do not take the words of Scripture at face value. Try to dig in them very deeply. It isn't. It just isn't their interest to do so. They just want to go to a church that makes you feel good when you go there, and makes you feel good after you leave, and and so that you get pumped up. You know, like Hans and Franz, you get pumped up for the next week. Uh, That's good, except that's not really the purpose of the church. Isn't really the purpose of a worship service. Really, isn't the purpose of the Bible. Even though we may enjoy. Those kind of experiences. But I want to talk about this phrase, by grace through faith, that we are saved by grace through faith. And I I, I know that people, when I say this, even people that have said these things would kind of disagree first, but it's verifiable that they've taught this, that we are saved by grace alone. And you hear this, it sounds so religious. I don't mean to be mocking, but it sounds so deep and spiritual and so religious that we're saved only by God's grace and we're saved by his grace alone. They turn around before they can get finished talking about that and tell you that you're saved by faith alone. You know that movie where the guy keeps saying inconceivable and yet everything he says is inconceivable is happening. One of my favorite movies, The Princess Bride, in case you don't, you need to see that. It's a classic. It's right up there with, you know, the Odyssey and the Iliad and the works of Shakespeare. 
And in this movie, he finally turns and he says, I do not think this word means what you think it means. The word only means something. And when you say this is done by this only and this only, it just can't be true. That's just simple, plain understanding of language and the universe as it exists. They both cannot be true when you use the word only. Okay? Now, now we can debate what that might mean. We can go further than that and see what they're saying. And usually what's happened is because it happens even among people that I know in Churches of Christ is they get a debate proposition, they go over that, and then they start leaving out words of the debate proposition. And they're talking about from the standpoint of man's activity, you're saved by faith alone. Okay, but you're not saying that. You're saying we're saved by, or we're saved by grace alone. If we were saved by grace alone, every single person would be saved because God's grace is so great and powerful and he extends his grace to every man. He sent his son, the embodiment of that grace. You want to know what the grace of God is? It's real simple. Look at Jesus Christ. He himself literally is the grace of God. And God sent that to every man, not just a few, not just the elect, as John Calvin says. How did John Calvin get to the proposition, which many Presbyterians and other Reformed people believe, that Christ only died for the elect? That didn't, he didn't get there from reading the scriptures, because the scriptures say Christ died for all. You get there from a logical starting point, all men, uh, you know, are totally, totally depraved, since they can't do anything good, they certainly can't believe, so God has to give you belief, and then God does this, and then finally you end up that God, Christ, Christ's blood was only shed for the elect, because if Christ shed his blood for the lost, that means God condemned these people before eternity began. They were going to be lost, and yet Christ died for them, and his blood didn't save them, so you get all these contradictions. And so you have to come up with the conclusion that Christ only died for the elect rather than died for all. But God sent his grace to all men. Titus, Paul told Titus that in chapter 2. But let's just go back. To, let's go. I'm getting way ahead. See, it's a hard, big subject. Let's go to the scriptures and see what they say about this salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 2, the centerpiece passage. Let's go right to the centerpiece passage that is often disagreed about. I don't think there should be any disagreement about it because I think it says what it says, and I think it says what is obviously true. And I'm not going to pit this scripture against another scripture. I don't believe in pitting scripture against each other. The scriptures agree. My understanding may be faulty, but they agree. So I have no problem with Paul's statement, for by grace have you been saved through faith. Paul does not save your saved by, he does not say in that verse, we could stop right here. Does he say you're saved by grace only? Does he say you're saved by faith only? When he puts the two in the same verse, for by grace have you been saved through faith, I know that there's no only in that, in that concept he's got. There's no only in his statement. Can't be. Because he's got two things. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. His comments about grace and faith are the idea that humans can somehow be good enough to save themselves. And we know that's simply not true. And it's not of works. You can't just line up all the good things you've done and then God will save you because you've done all these good things. There are a lot of rich people, and I've known them directly and indirectly, who come from poor poorer beginnings, more humble beginnings, and become extremely wealthy. And like the guy Ryan Holmes, but all these homes are a billionaire. My brother became friends with him and worked with 
with uh, Ryan after Hurricane Andrew down there. And he told my brother, he says, I, I, I give all my, almost all my money away because I'm trying to be saved. And if I can just do enough good things, despite the bad things I've done, I'm trying to make up for all that. And I give all this money away. I do all these things. He keeps some for himself, of course, but, but he gives most of it away. More than you and I could ever imagine he's given away. Will that save this man? Nothing. Can't, can't, even, can't even begin to think about saving himself by giving away his money and doing all these good things. So we're not saved. And that's what Paul's saying here. Nobody can boast I'm so good, God has to save me. Look at all these good things. Now, people have tried. Don't get me wrong. People have tried to do that. The Pharisees tried to do this. Many others have tried. But Paul's saying that's not how it works. For we are his workmanship. God has engineered all these things to create his people. And in truth, he brought you here today. I believe whether you're saved or whether you're lost this morning, God brought you to this building. To think about these things. But the difference between me and John Calvin is, I think you have a choice as to whether you listen and read the Bible or whether you don't. You have a choice from what you hear and see to do what you will with it, even though God may have brought you here for these events. I've just seen too many circumstances in my life that can't be explained any other way than, you know, God's providential hand was involved. I can't prove that, that God did this or God did, but I can tell you that's how he works in the world. He puts people in contact with his work, with choices that they can make. And then they make a choice. This is the part that most Reformed theologians and most many people you know would reject, that they get to make the choice eventually what they do with what God does for them. But we're his workmanship in the end. Whatever you do in the end, God brought that all about for you. And He, you made choices, but he worked with you in all of that so that you can accomplish what you do. And he says, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Don't be slamming good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I understand that the good works in verse 10 are coming after a person is saved. They're not the good works that lead to salvation. The good works come after the salvation in this verse. Not in all verses, but in this verse, they certainly do. So what does this mean? We're saved by grace through faith. This is the phrase that's being said. And and I think, first of all, what we'll see is that grace is the essential element of salvation. Because by essential, I don't mean the only element of salvation by any means. But without it, of course, nothing else could ever happen. If God had not, and the word grace and new age used in the New Testament, in many ver- I don't want to put all these up here because we just don't have time this morning to look at that. But, but the way it's used in the New Testament, you can take love of God, mercy of God, and the grace of God. You can lump them into one. And essentially the way they're used in the ancient world, those words kind of mean the same thing. Love and mercy and grace all kind of mean the same thing. One just means goodness and kindness, you see, and, and uh, one means having the best interest of the other person at heart, which would mean goodness and kindness. So they all kind of mean the same thing in certain usages. So this is the essential element. We do not love God first and seek him and get him to make a bargain with us. We'll only love him because he first loved us. Isn't that what John says? And so essentially, if God had not extended his mercy to man, not one single human could ever be saved, would have ever been saved. If he had done what he should have done, perhaps, in in some ways of looking at it, and destroyed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden because of their sin, then there would be no humans to save. If he had done what he did with the angels, 
And when humans sinned, he simply cast them away who sinned against him and consigned them to chains of darkness. We would never be saved. The book of Hebrews is becoming one of my favorite passages, Hebrews 2.14. Not to angels does he give help, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. God did not at the beginning of time or whenever it was that angels sinned against him, including Satan and all of his, his assistants. When they sinned against God, God simply wrote them off. Now, he did not destroy them instantly like we think he should have. But he wrote them off. He never has offered them any hope or pardon or mercy or grace or anything. He's never once offered them a chance to undo the fate that they deserve for rebelling against him, for sinning against him. Their sin led to an immediate sentence of death, although that death has not been completely carried out yet. It will be. It's a final sentence. He's never once offered them a manner to be saved. He's never provided a propitiation, any way to satisfy his wrath against them. He's never made any atonement for their sins. It's just They just stand as apart from God. He lets them exist because he has purposes in mind that you and I can't understand and fathom as to why he does this. But I tell you what I think from reading the scripture without going into great detail. I think God spared Satan and the angels of sin for our benefit. He wanted us to interact with the devil and his angels. He wanted to see what we would do in interacting in the world he made with the devil and with evil. And that's how God fashions us. That's how he eventually creates, out of that mass of humanity, interacting with Satan and the wickedness and with his son and the goodness, all interacting together in this world we live in, he creates his people to save for eternity. Fashioned and made true and faithful, and true, and he can hold up this group of people, humans, as the shining star of the universe of all of his creation. That's why I think he left them. He left Satan alone. That's why I think he allows so much horror and evil in the world. That's why he allows you to sin sometimes and doesn't stop you from sinning. When Christ prayed and showed us how to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Don't you wish that would just be something God would just do? That God would just take care of that when you pray that? That's what some people think. And so therefore, when they do sin, they say, well, I can't be sinning because I asked Christ not to lead me into temptation, so what I must be doing is not giving in. Oh, really? We think that it's all on God's side. He doesn't do that. He wants to see what you do with respect to his word. Now, we're getting far afield, but this idea of grace or mercy being shown or love being shown to man in spite of his sin is the essential element that makes the church what it is, makes Christians what they are. And I'm way ahead of myself here, but I want to say this. I've been saying this thing since I first started preaching 47 years ago on one of my first sermons to any group of people. I said, you cannot be saved until you've been lost. I was only 22 years old, and I, I believed that then, and I was living that then. I was living really intensely with that then, and I say it today now as an old man. You cannot really be saved until you've been lost. You have to understand what lost is to be a Christian, to even want to be a Christian in the true sense. Oh, you can be born in a Christian country and grow up and go, go to church a couple times a year and do whatever you want. You can do that kind of Christianity, but to be a true Christian, you have to come to a point of understanding that you're a sinner. And that you have sinned, that you cannot fix that problem, that you are an affront to God. Despite how clean and nice you smell this morning, how well you're dressed and all that kind of stuff, you got a new haircut, you're an affront to God. 
in your natural state, in your natural state as a sinner. And when you feel that, and when you know this, now salvation and grace has a place to hook onto you. That's the place where God's grace latches onto you, that place of sin, that place of failure. It latches on and grabs you and pulls you toward him. From there, that's where you get the hook. Not because you're so good that God just has to have you in heaven. And that's why that's the church has too many people. Religion has always had too many people who were going to go to heaven because they were so good, never really understood sin. This is a problem of people for people like me who were raised in the time they were age of that little boy right there, that little girl who mother brought them to church every time. That was my problem. And that was a problem of the people that I grew up with, a bunch of them. They, they were pretty good people because they went to church since they were little kids. And I grew up knowing all these things, knowing what God, knowing, hearing the truth. Week after week, I'd sit there in the front row and bore, but I was hearing it all. And then you grow up and you feel pretty good. And then, then one day you realize, you know, last night I did what? I said what? You begin to think. And you realize, you know, you can go to church all you want to. It doesn't make you good. It does not make you good. You can want to do stuff, but you don't do it. And you're still not good. Because you have to be saved by grace. So grace can hook on to you and you can feel the mercy. You can then understand the mercy. And I've had much less problems in, with people in churches from people who, as an adult, facing a life of sin and maybe feeling that they've wasted their life. They've come to Christ, been baptized, been saved. I have less difficulty dealing with those people and teaching them than the ones who always thought they were saved in the time they were an infant and think they know everything. And the difference is, not because one person's good and one person's not, the difference is one realizes they were a sinner and they're so thankful for the grace of God, the others do not realize that. And, and churches of Christ have a special problem with this. So do probably every other church. I've not been in very many other churches. Let's look at this. Let's go back. We're going to have to do this quickly. But the book of Hebrews tells us something important to realize. And it just gives us one example. The law had a, the law of Moses is talking about here in verse 1 of Hebrews 10 has a shadow of good things to come, but it's not the real image of the things. It was, it was made, the law of Moses, what we read in the Old Testament, was made to, in a schematic way. The word they, the word they use here is schematic in the, in the Greek. It's a, it's a sketch of the real thing later. So I was digging through the closet the other day and ran into my house plans for my house and the addition. Pull it out, look at it. It's nice. It's interesting. And I remember when that's all I had was the plans. Now I got the real house, been living in it for 20 years. Which is better? Which should I think is real? The plans or the real house? So we in Christ have the real house. They just had the sketch. But this sketch showed us something. They kept having to make these sacrifices year after year. Blood, 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 blood. The Old Testament was a bloody thing. Even before the law of Moses... Coming to Jehovah was a bloody thing from Cain and Abel on, and that's because of sin. All that blood was shed to show men you're a sinner. All that life was taken. All these innocent animals were slaughtered, and their blood was caught coming out of the neck and thrown on the altar. It was covering the priests. All these white garments the priests wore were covered in blood all the time because of sin. But that's not the message most Israelites got from it. 
That isn't the message they got. They got, we're pretty good because we're killing all these animals. Look at us, we're pretty good because we're killing all these animals. We're doing what God says. We're good. The message was supposed to be, look how great sinners we are that it requires all this blood. But he says in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Even the great sacrifice on the Day of Atonement only was good for a year. It was such an elaborate, I can't go into that this morning, such an elaborate and impressive ceremony on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But he says here's the reason why they did it every year, as God commanded. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. In spite of all that God said about it, all the great ceremony, in spite of the fact maybe they did it as perfectly as it could be done. It just wasn't ever designed to really take away sins. It couldn't do it. It could, it could appease God's wrath for a time, but it can't take it away because it's a fake. The one whose life is required is the sinner, not the goat or the bull. God's mercy lets you kill the goat or the bull, but it will never really fix the problem. What had to happen is someone even better than you had to come along and give his life the real sacrifice. And then God's wrath could be appeased. This is how great your sin is. It's about the mercy of God, but it's also about you and your disregard. I don't know what your sin is. It's maybe different than mine, probably not that much different. Most of the time it's just high-handedness and rebellion and saying, I'm going to do what I want in various ways. And we do this. That's the root of the sin. Even go to Hebrews chapter 10, it says a little bit later, previously he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin you would, did not desire. They really weren't what you were after. All we saw in the law of Moses was all this sacrifice and blood, as I said, and all these other offerings of, of, of fruit and grain and incense. You didn't really want that, though, did you? No. You did not have pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. And then here's what he has pleasure in. We're, here's what will satisfy God. Because of the greatness of our sin, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Who said that? Jesus Christ said that. Before he was a human, before he was embodied in the one we know as Jesus, in heaven he said, behold, I come to do your will, O God. And he takes away the first that he may establish the second. People still want to go back to that first law. First law had its purpose. But this law that we live under, this Salvation is so much greater. And by that will, the will of Christ, we have been sac- we ha- we ha- we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. No years, 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 only once. That's the problem with the Catholic Mass. The Catholic Mass offers Jesus' blood every time it's offered. They offer the blood and the body of Jesus every time it's offered. Now I understand that scholars would say that I'm incorrect, but I'm not incorrect about that fact. They would say I misunderstand it or I'm I'm shallow and ignorant, and I can get that. But I do know what this verse says. I know it says that Christ's blood was actually only offered once for all. And I need to respect that because that's all, all that needs to be said. And there it is. Not the blood of bulls and goats, nothing that people, not all the elaborate ceremonies, all the elaborate things people do to make themselves feel good. They have to understand that only Christ. Now, here, here, here's the problem I want to touch on. I've got more slides, of course. I'm on number five of 14. I don't think this is going to work. That's really a pain with...
keynote here. It tells me what slide I'm on. It gives me a countdown how long I've been talking. Right in front of my front of me. It's everything I could. Well, it's not everything I could. It takes a lot to ignore that every week, doesn't it? Which I do. Anyway. And little sides like that take a minute or two off the, off the top. One, one word that does not fit with modern American society and really probably hasn't fit with most societies is the word sin. It's a simple little word. And it means missing the mark. But the one thing that you really can't get at with American culture is the word sin. Nothing that we do in this culture can ever be called a sin except eating too much chocolate cake. It's a sinful chocolate cake. Really. If there's one thing God never did call sinful, it was chocolate cake. But we can call it decadent, sinful. It, it, it grates me every, I hate to say, it, I'm so stupid. It grates me every time I hear that. Because a society that touts that men can be women and women can be men and children can be either one they want. And all the other stuff that we put forward, all the shows and the music awards and the music and the dancing and all the sin, all the broken marriages and broken promises that we live with in this society. And I'm just scratching the surface. Everywhere you go, you got to lock down all your stuff because it's going to be stolen. You can't trust anybody with anything. All that. And we're worried about chocolate cake being sinful. We do this on purpose. We want to think that sin is not recycling, putting the wrong jugs in the wrong bin, and that sin is how fast you drive on the internet, whether you have a Tesla. Sorry, they're not here, so I can talk about that. <laughs> and whether you have an electric car. I'm not a sinner. Look at me. I wear, you know, recyclable clothes or whatever they are. God looks down from heaven. I don't know what he, th- I know what he thinks. I don't know how he tolerates it. And I only know this much about his holiness. I only know this much about the true holiness of God. And I don't know how he puts up with this stuff from us. Chocolate cake. Sinful. I know it's an expression, but words mean things. Expressions become expressions because they mean something. And they grow or they die out, depending on what the people are like. So to get across the concept today to the average person that you may meet, who, who is well-intentioned oftentimes, I'm not, that they're a sinner. When they, they live in a nice house with air conditioning, hot water, and they got nice, fancy, smelly soaps, like I say all the time, the, the women of our country and the men too, we got more stuff to make us beautiful than Cleopatra ever had. You think of Cleopatra, you know, Elizabeth Taylor, they're in all the baths and oils and all the other things. Women do that. Every common women can go to Walmart and buy ten times better stuff than Cleopatra ever had. And yet we think somehow that we don't have enough. All of those, just take an ordinary person, though, clean, nice smelling, and you try to convince them they're a sinner. I tell you, but until I can convince them they're a sinner, they can't be saved. Until I can convince myself I'm a sinner, I can't be saved. So there's the problem. And you know what? This has always been the problem. <laughs> that's why it took, that's why it took, uh, Paul being struck blind on the road to Damascus to change his mind. That's why it took a, took a jail being shaken open to get the Philippian jailer to think twice about it. Uh, you know, and other people that saw those same things didn't even react, didn't even bother them. And so we got the same problem they've always had. 
Now, we can debate about how to get person from realizing that they really do need to think about their sin. And I will grant you that there are many people that I meet who understand that they're a sinner, and they've done things that they think they've been told will fix that sin. They've followed the religious prescriptions of the various denominations, and they think that what they've done will take care of their sin. And the question is, will it? Have they truly been saved by grace through faith? Or they they bought into somebody else's uh, system that isn't complete, incomplete. Most of Protestant denominational ways of saving people are are not bad per se. They're incomplete. They're founded on faulty premises and they're incomplete because of that. And some of that's because we're sinners. We don't want to do all that God says. We want to do what we want to do about it. Naaman had no problem dipping in the water to be healed from leprosy. He had a problem dipping in the river that God said to dip it in. Dip in. In 2 Kings 5. He wanted to do something that God said. He didn't want to do all that God said. And he was a good man. Naaman was a good man. His servant would never have told him about this salvation if he hadn't been a good man. And when he was saved, Naaman tried to talk to the prophet about, how can I go back now and worship really right? I want to worship God correctly. He was a good man. But he still wanted to do what he wanted to do. There's our problem. In Romans 3, this famous verse, Paul says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. So God has a righteousness, a way of being right, a way for us to be right. It's revealed to us aside from the law of Moses, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets are witnesses to what God really had in mind. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe. So the salvation of God comes through faith to all who believe in Christ. For there is no difference. Jew and Gentile, there is no difference. For why? Why why is there no difference? Well, here's the reason God made no difference. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There it is. Now that's a broad statement. And we can say, well, that person's a worse sinner than me. They may be. I don't know. So I, go, I, we were in Tampa yesterday. The fairgrounds is near the casino, the Hard Rock Casino. It used to be a trailer in Fort Lauderdale. It's just a little trailer. Seminole Indians had a little trailer selling cigarettes out of the back of a trailer. Oh, I, I know because I used to buy cigarettes there for my mother. She wanted, she wanted me to get $3 cigarettes for her. So anyway. So I would. But now it's a huge casino. And they're taking up all the land around there and built this huge casino. All the business cater to the casino. You drive right past that to the fairground. So underneath the bridge by the, uh, by the casino, here you got all these guys huddled. I thought, I think there's a dead guy in the bushes there. I think. I saw some blankets all wrapped up in human form up in the bushes. So I was going to stop and I forgot to kick it and see if it was alive. And they're all huddled up, two or three of them huddled up under the bridge, kind of wrapped up with their paper bags, you know, and all this stuff. Now, let me ask you something. Should I pity those men, or should I call them sinners? What's what's the answer? (laughs) Both. I pity them. I don't hate them. I pity them. I'm not angry with them. I pity them. But let me tell you, just because I feel sorry for them and they're worse off than I am doesn't mean they're not sinners. They got there by being a sinner. They got up underneath that bridge by being a sinner. 
think about that. Oh, no, that, they just have a chemical problem. Yeah, I know. And their own sin of their will lets the chemical control them. I, I know. You can talk about all you want to. Their addiction to gambling, alcohol, drugs. They've done so much poor thing, so many poor things in their life. Even their own family won't take them in. They may have made no friends or all their friends have turned away. How does that happen without sin? And they need the gospel just like all you nice shiny people in church for the same reason. You see. You polish it up, still what it is. All have sinned, not just the guy under the bridge. This is the problem that you and I face. Then he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation for his blood. Propitiation means an appeasement. He set him forth to appease his wrath by using Christ's blood and so forth. So we've been, if we're a Christian, we've been justified freely by the grace of God. Not by grace alone, because the redemption comes in Christ Jesus, and you have to have faith in Christ Jesus. You know, we got this song that we sang. It's written by Calvinist John Augustus Toplady, a couple hundred years after John Calvin, but he said, could, you know, could my tears forever, rock of ages, you know the song. The first verse says that be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure, keep me pure. That's the two works of grace according to John Calvin. One work of grace was to save you from your sins. The other one was to keep you from being a sinner. I don't think the scripture teaches that as such, that there's two works of grace that are all done just by God. God does all of that himself. You do nothing with regard to that. That's the point. But he does say in this song, it's a good, it's a good song, could my tears forever flow, could my zeal no languor know, these for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. That's true. God must save. We can't save ourselves. In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Now, I would disagree a little bit with that. There's no price I can put in my hand that God would accept to save me, whether I live under a bridge or whether I'm a nice, fancy person in, in a church. There's no, nothing I can put in my hand except faith. Okay. I can put faith, I can put belief and trust in my hand, and I can go to God with that. When I go to God with faith in Him, in His Son, Jesus Christ, that can save me. But there's no other price that could be paid for that. So we're saved, the scriptures say, by grace, not by grace alone, through faith, not by faith alone. So my faith is the conduit of God's grace. Without the faith on my part, there is no way for God's grace to reach me. Faith is not static, I have up here. It's dynamic. It changes over a lifetime, over a period of time. It can change. And that's why Christ can say things like, oh, ye of little faith. He's he's trying to tell them, you have little faith now, but it can be great. And if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this, he's trying to tell, yes, your faith is small now, but it can be great. So faith is dynamic. It can change. And faith is my response to God's word. It's not something that I do. Responding to God in faith when God says, when, when, when God said to Naaman, go dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be cleansed. When he went and did that, it wasn't something that he did on his own to save, to save himself. 
It was simply a response of faith. He had to believe that what God said was true and the little, the little servant girl convinced him, you should trust this God. This God is the one who can save you. And he, he, he did. And when he did that, God's grace reached him. So faith is my response to God's word. It's something that I do. At what point of my faith does God provide grace? At the point at which I obey God. That's when it responds. And that's why James says very clearly that faith without works is dead. By works, it means, it means obedience there, not works that you do to get be righteous, but works of obedience. Because, he says, the demons also believe and tremble. Demons believe in God. They don't make the mistake of atheists and agnostics of our day or so high highfalutin that they don't even know if God exists and don't believe in God. Even the demons don't make that mistake. They know God exists. They just don't do anything about it. They will not respond to him. So when you respond to God's grace by obedience, now you have a chance. So let's take another example. We got a, you know, we, we, we've only got we got all day. Uh, I can't do two sermons out of this. The walls of Jericho. You know, people think the Bible is full of children's stories. Eh, children, it's so it's so plain. Even children can get something out of it. But the stories of the Bible are not children. David and Goliath is not a children's story. The walls of Jericho falling down is not a children's story. It's a story of great of of what faith is to human beings, to grown ups. God tells the people of Israel to this great this great fortified city of Jericho on the plain. There, He says, "I have given Jericho into your hand." Okay, great. Let's go in. Let's go right on. Let's walk right on in. Then in the next verse, he, he tells them, you shall march around the city seven times. You'll do this, you'll do this. On this day, you do this. And then you blow the trumpet and the thing will fall down. But I thought you gave it, I thought we were going to be saved by you doing something only. By your grace only. I thought we were going to be saved by that. No, when God told them, I've given Jericho to your hand. Now do this. He wasn't contradicting himself. According to John Calvin, he was contradicting himself. According to most Protestant preachers, he was contradicting himself. Because if God did it, that means you have to do nothing. You see. It's kind of like this verse right here in Colossians 2. In him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. There's a circumcision that humans do, and there's a circumcision that God does. You've been circumcised with the one that God does. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, not real flesh, but the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. How's that happen? Well, it happens this way. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you're baptized, for as an example, when you're baptized, God provides the grace there. And you provide the faith in God's working. You believe that when God says he'll do this, he will. That faith makes it all work. But God has to provide it, you see. It's made without hands. Now, go back to Jericho. He says, you'll mar- you, I, I've given your hands, you'll march around the city. And then verse 12 and 16, you shout for Jehovah's, Jehovah's given you the city. And then he says, they took the city. Which is it? Did God give it to them or did they take it? You see how it's actually both? Those two things aren't contradictory like a lot of modern religions teach. God saying do this and you having faith to do what God says are not contradictory. They're they're together. And I could give you 
five weeks of sermons on this very subject with different examples in them about how faith works to do because of obedience to do what God says. And that's why you see in the book of Hebrews, uh, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. They fell down by faith after they were encircled for seven days. After the humans did what God said, the walls fell down by faith because God made it that way. And then Acts 2.20, Acts 2.20 he tells these people they're sinners and he tells them, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Repent and be baptized and save yourselves. By faith, you do that. Not as a work, but by faith. Philippians 2 tells them to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You do what God says. You obey him in faith, not because you're so great, but because you're a sinner. You obey God, and God will do what he says he'll do. So saving faith then involves, first of all, knowledge of what God's word is. And we get that through the scriptures. We find knowledge about what God's word is. And then we have a personal trust in Christ and God's word to do what, that he will do what he says he will do. And we believe that that's right and good. And then we obey. That's how you're saved. That's how grace works through faith. If there wasn't any grace, the offer would never have been there in the first place. There'd be no hope of salvation. We'd be cast aside like the devils. If that's what, if there was no grace, that's what it would be. But God offers his grace. Now he says, you go take the city. We can do that. I have confidence that humans can do what God tells them to do. I should have confidence because that's the truth. If God says that you, you should do this, you can do this. And you can come to this understanding. So this morning as we close, I, I want to emphasize with you, yes, you're a sinner. doesn't have to stay that way. You don't have to stay locked in being lost having obeyed Christ only com- in, only completely. Maybe the best you know, but you know better. Now, it takes more than that. It takes more than just saying a sinner's prayer to be saved. Do what God says to do. Come, repent of your sins. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. And if you've been walking away from Christ, depending on your own self, you're, not, you're still not good. Come back to the Lord and in faith do what he says to do. Let's think about this. If we can help you, come right to the front. Let's stand and sing.